It's the People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsuume. The internet knows me better as Nine Squirrels. Okay, and we are back with an old friend of mine, Gabby Dizon from the Philippines. And I would tell you all about him, but I'm going to let him do it. Uh, Gabby, let us know who you are. Okay, very short intro. So I've been making games for the last 14 years. I've been running my own company called Altitude Games uh, for the last three. Uh, we're actually coming up on our third anniversary next week. Before that, I worked at BoomZap for four years, then had my own company before then, uh, which also worked with BoomZap. So yeah, you can see that uh, you and I have a pretty long history together, Chris. Yeah, we, we do, we do. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um... You know, for those who don't know, uh, Gabby did work with me for for many years, and and he and a couple other people from BoomZap went and started their their own brand new studio, Altitude Games, and it was it was kind of an interesting time because Altitude Games was in in some ways it was like BoomZap version two because it started with you know so much sort of BoomZap legacy. Uh, but it was a whole brand new thing, and I wanted you to kind of walk me through what those early days were like, and specifically. What what did you take from BoomZap and what what did you change? What what do you where what is different about Altitude? Okay, uh, I guess the biggest thing that's different uh, between uh, Altitude and BoomZap was that uh, you never really felt comfortable about free to play games. And I was listening to your podcast with Ariella, and uh, you were saying that like you you kind of felt forced to do it. That was where the market was going. You didn't re- really want to do it, and eventually you opted out, and you're much happier doing the shit you're doing right now. So for me, it's something I actually really wanted to do. Uh, like it it fascinates me the whole point of you know. Uh, uh, ha- having everything tracked, optimizing quick iterations, things like that. Because I've always been interested in the technology industry where a lot of these practices came from, uh, these things had already naturally interested me. And to be working on this while working on games. So, yeah, that, that was a challenge that I particularly wanted to take on. You know, it's it's funny. I find, uh, you know, the other person who's a, a, a good friend of mine, the guys over at PlayLab are, are huge free-to-play uh, sort of supporters, and I noticed that people who come from strong business backgrounds they love free to play because there's such a strong business case for it, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 a lot of the things that business people are comfortable with, things like being able to track all of your metrics and being able to do A/B testing and blah blah blah. There's so much that comes with the data analysis of a free to play game. I, I find that people who who come from a business background they love it, and people who come from sort of an old-school game development background without the strong business background, they tend to be more resistant to it. Yeah, I, you you would say that I'm somewhere in the middle because I, I did uh, start my career pretty much uh, similar to yours, doing a lot of the PC casual where we didn't have that kind of analytics. But uh, at the same time, I've always kept my eye on what that kind of uh, like online businesses were like. I've always been interested, re- read a lot of books about it. Uh, that said, I didn't come directly from that business uh, so it's you know the, the learning curve has been pretty steep and it's still quite a challenge uh, you know being in the games industry in general and doing free to play in particular but uh, yeah I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way I, I would say you know and you can correct me if I'm wrong uh, you've always been a gamer you've been very interested in games it would be wrong to say that you're an outsider to games but I think in your heart You've always been sort of an entrepreneur first and a game developer second. Would that be a, a fair statement? Okay, so there are, I would say, three 
concentric circles that I kind of define myself in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, game development, uh, entrepreneurship, and Southeast Asia. So with BoomZap, I, I filled two of those, and very happily, I, I would add. So game development in Southeast Asia. But, you know, before I joined your company, I was an entrepreneur, and then yeah. after four years, I had to close my company. And then I don't remember, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when you hired me, you said, like, just some offhand remark about, like, oh, I know in, in like, three or four years, you want to do this again. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Enough, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we knew it. We knew. I, mean, I knew from the day we hired you that this is going to last until Gabby wants to go start another studio again because this entrepreneurship gene in you has always been so strong. Yeah, so it yeah it, it doesn't go away. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about. Uh, so you talked about uh, free to play being different. I'm curious about you know one of the things that BoomZap is very well known for in the industry is its virtual uh, its virtual studio makeup. The fact that we don't yeah. have an office anywhere and and you were part of building this, Gabby. I mean, in in the times when we scaled up. And when we built this this sort of, uh, you know, and, and there was a point at which BoomZap was 90-some-odd people all yeah. working from home. And, and you were part of building that infrastructure. So you went away, and you got a chance to start it all over again from scratch. And Altitude is also uh, primarily a virtual business, but I believe you guys also have office space. Tell me a little bit about how you changed that model when you got a chance to start all over again after having the experience of helping me build a virtual studio over at BoomZap. Right. It's actually very interesting because uh, there are things that you may want to improve in an ongoing business, but because everyone knows how to use this tool or do this kind of report, you're kind of stuck with it uh, culturally. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we were fortunate that when we were starting Altitude, I mean, three of us were from BoomZap, but other people weren't. So we were kind of starting from a blank slate and starting with this is our experience with virtual and we knew we start we still wanted to do some kind of virtual studio but how would we do it now that we're starting all over again and i have a term for it now uh, which i call uh, 80% remote so you're right we do have a, a small office space and uh, i'll explain a little bit more why so, uh at BoomZap, because we are 100% virtual and a lot of people are from different countries, uh, meeting up had always been a challenge. You would come over, then uh, book a huge suite. People would come over, maybe work for a couple of days there. Uh, but because uh, the the employee base of Altitude is primarily over 90% in the Philippines, uh, we needed some sort of a more regularity to how we would meet with people. Well, it's, it's not know, just the Philippines. It's actually almost entirely in Metro Manila, right? Uh, almost. Not quite. There's still some people outside, but yeah, okay. almost. Uh, so we settled for what we call uh, 80% remote. And uh, the way I view it, like, and this is something I developed uh, when I was at BoomSap, there are different speeds to communication, and you use the right one when it's appropriate. Uh, email is appropriate maybe for talking to people outside your company. Chat is appropriate when you want to discuss something here and now. Voice is appropriate when uh, you, you want to back and forth about ideas or maybe when you're discussing, discussing problems. And the need for uh, the need for real face-to-face communication really doesn't go away, especially when you're tackling very tough, abstract things. Maybe someone has a problem. Maybe you're trying to brainstorm on a new game. But there's a lot of things where, honestly, things like just taking cues from other people's facial expressions or having a few people in the same room, uh, it never really goes away. So knowing that, 
but knowing that you don't need to be beside each other like 100% of the time. In fact, there are many times when it's more detrimental to your productivity when you're beside someone or you, if you need to be physically beside someone else. So we opted for... Uh, a small office space where it functions more like a co-working space. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just large tables there in a conference room, and nobody owns a permanent desk. Actually, we share it with another small company owned by the same investor that we have. And uh, so what happens is that when people feel like they need to talk uh, to, to their teams, they go there. Maybe once a month or once a quarter, we summon people for you know entire team meeting. Uh and then now we've, uh, because people said, you know, sometimes I just want to work with other people, but I don't know if anyone's coming to the office, so I don't go. So we instituted a co-work Wednesdays where people know that on Wednesday every week, there's somebody's going to be there. But other than that, people are pretty much free to work wherever, whenever they want. You know, it's funny. A lot of what you're talking about there is stuff that in our studio organically developed in certain locations. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't we don't have a space anywhere, but... We know that some of our staff, specifically some of our Filipino staff, uh, they like to work together. They just like to be around people. And, and it's yeah. something, it's one, it's one of the downsides of the virtual office that doesn't get talked about very much. You get lonely, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, at, at the risk of sounding a little bit racist, Filipinos are particularly a social culture, right? They're people that, <laughs> yeah. that like to be around other people. They're people that like to work around other people. And I think some of our, especially, we, we noticed it more in the Philippines. Some of our Filipino staff, I, I think when they were working at home day in, day out, they, they got lonely. I mean, just as simple as that. They just wanted someone to be around them. And so they, they tend to seek out cafes and they get to work together. And so a lot of our staff, even though we don't organize it, they self-organize, you know, hey, let's all work at this pizza place or let's all work at this coffee shop on Tuesday. And and it's funny because if you actually look at how they're working when they do it, they're still instant messaging each other, right? Yep. They're, they're literally in the same cafe. They're literally All they have to do is lift their face up and talk to the guy in front of them, but they don't. They still type to each other. They still, they still work within the sort of way that they know how to work in a virtual studio. They just want some human beings around them sometimes. It's interesting. Yeah, one thing that's also different is that uh, we do a lot of upfront uh, intensive training, especially on the even uh, because we we work with Unity as the game engine, and yeah. each studio uh, kind of creates their own little pipeline on how they work with any game engine, be it yours or someone else's. Yeah. So we do a lot of upfront uh, training on how we we work on our particular uh, workflow, and uh, that almost requires face-to-face we've done it remotely it's been very difficult and you know and we we've had people from like other provinces or like some other asian countries that we've flown in for training but yeah that's been something that's been very hard to do uh remotely yeah i'll tell you you know we i tell everybody everyone says you know oh, i could never work in your virtual studio model and and you know we've made it work i think boom zaps now on year 12 or so and we've had good times and bad times with it but in any way that you want to work, there are going to be downsides, right? Yeah. And whether you're working in a virtual model or an 80% virtual model or a you know, 100% brick-and-mortar model, however you're working, there's going to be downsides. But because people are so aware of and used to the downsides of working in a normal office, they don't bring those up very much, right? Yeah. So somebody, somebody will come to me and say, well, you know, in your virtual studio, how do you deal with this problem? And I always want to say, like, 
Well, how do you deal with a problem that everyone has to commute for two hours every day in your studio? <laughs> how do you how do you handle that problem? But but we don't talk about that as a problem because everyone's so used to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or or how do you deal with a problem that you know you have to sit in a loud office and it's hard to concentrate because there's all these people around you? Or how do you deal with a problem that some days you need to go to a doctor's office at three o'clock in the afternoon and that doctor's office is on the other side of Metro Manila and that means that you basically drive to work and work for an hour and then drive back home and do this thing and and how do you how do you, you know we don't talk about those problems in a brick and mortar studio because we're used to those right. Yeah. But then yeah. when you when you do something different, when you say, hey, we're in a virtual studio, they pick out the one or two things that are difficult in a virtual studio and say, see, this is why your business can't work, because you have to deal with this thing. And you say, well, yeah, that's... And then they, and then they close down a year later, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. That's, that's the thing. I mean, I, there, I don't uh, know how many people I've talked to who told me our business model could never work, and their studios are gone, and we're still here. Knock on wood. I don't want to brag, but... You know, it, it is a it is a viable model. And, and even here, I think it's fascinating that you've got the way that you guys and, and again, with three founders from your studio having been from my studio. So, you, you know, intimately how we work, even though even a studio with three of the founders from that background has chosen a different way to build their studio, which kind of leads me to my argument, which is every group of people needs to figure out what's the best way for them to work. Yeah, yeah. One thing that uh, slightly pisses me off is that you know when we sometimes you talk about the hard times and then someone tries and you talked about it in your last podcast. Someone tries to give you helpful advice and this this particular flavor of helpful advice is, well, you know that you know you're going through a rough rough patch now. You know it's probably because everyone's going remote. Why don't you get everyone in the office for the next three months and sort things out? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, people, people, people know what works for them. And when they want to help you, they always pull back to that. And I, and we yeah. had the same thing before. I've, I've, you know, I've worked with publishers that just flat out told me we could never work like you do. And, and maybe they can't because they've created this, this entire social structure around their office yeah. about how they do their work. And yeah, transforming that would be very difficult. Uh, one of my arguments has always against the sort of 80% virtual model has been I've seen studios, and I, I don't think yours is one of them, I've seen studios where there are people that are required to come into the office and there are people that aren't required to come into the office, and the people who are required to come into the office get all pissed and cheesed off at the people who aren't required because they say, well, what are they doing at home? Are they really working at home? How come they're not here for this meeting? How come they didn't have this information? And that's where I, I, I see it get very dysfunctional because you've got two very separate sort of yeah. paradigms going on in your office. Now, what you guys seem to have done is say everyone gets to work from home, but we're going to offer you this resource of a place to work when it's more convenient for you to work together. But you haven't said, hey, you know what? You four guys, you get to come into the office every single day because you are not you are not the work from home group. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, when people tell me, I get a lot, people say, oh, well, we tried work from home, but it didn't work for us. And when you investigate it, almost always it's, well, yeah, there was this one person and we let her work from home and she didn't know what we were talking about in all the meetings that we had in the office where we didn't consider the fact that we had somebody working virtually and we didn't invite her into that meeting. And she didn't know what was happening at this water cooler chat that we had that wasn't an official meeting. So obviously this doesn't work. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, there are a lot of people who ask me for advice. You know, traffic's really bad. My employees are suffering. How can we uh, do remote work in our company? And I tell them the key difference is that with our company, our our chat program, our chat room, HipChat, is our office. Yep. And the office is a physical manifestation of where people choose to meet. If your office is your physical office, uh, it's it will never work. Yeah, exactly, and and that's it's exactly how it is. For do you still use Chip or HipChat or do you use Slack? What are you using internally? HipChat still up to now. All right, so I I just finished talking to Gwen from uh, Imba. And they, they use Slack, and there's there's always the is it Slack or is it HipChat <laughs> argument. One of these days, if this podcast ever takes off, I'm going to get HipChat to sponsor me because I'm like the huge advocate for HipChat. But I, I think it's just because that's what we started using. I'm pretty sure that if we had started on Slack, we would like Slack as much. But but for us, that HipChat is the office. I'm in the office when I'm on HipChat, and it's so nice because I can I can drop by the office while I'm sitting on the toilet. I can drop by the office while I'm riding on a train. I can drop by the office when I'm taking a bike ride and I take a 15-minute break at a really pretty park and I want to see what everyone's up to. And that's that's powerful. Yeah, absolutely agree. So I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit. One of the other big differences between, and I, I don't want this whole podcast to be a BoomZap versus Altitude chat, uh, but but in this case, I do want to, I do want to talk about that contrast. Uh, BoomZap's 12 years on, and we're still 100% founder-owned. And from the very beginning of Altitude, I think you guys had thought that having somebody come in and be somebody that was going to fund your studio, that was going to be part of your corporate mix. And I'm curious why you made that decision when you were putting your studio together, and how does that make you guys different? Well, uh, well, let me tell you uh, the main difference. So we got out and got just a little money when we started the company, uh, and... You know, we, we had a tiny office. We didn't invest in nice nice chairs. But I'll tell you one thing we did invest in that we wouldn't have been able to do without Investor, and that was create our own IP. Yeah. Uh, number one, create our own IP, and then uh, number two, decide to have multiple teams at the beginning. And uh, I would say that this was a conscious choice. We didn't do this because, oh, you know, we, had, we have a lot of money and we don't know what to do with it. Uh, the one of the scariest things I would say about owning a game studio is is being a one game team, and I was and you you always know that any game you release, no matter how nice, how pretty, how well polished, has some amount of failure built into the process when you launch, and I I didn't want to be in a position where like one failure and we're out. And you know that happens to a lot of studios, particularly That's, the bigger AAA ones, right? The the one failure and you're out is is not something that happens. That's the model, right? That's that's the majority of game studios. If you if you include all the indie studios, one shot failure done, that's actually more likely to happen than anything else. Yeah, so there are a couple of things with having this investor surpass in particular that that was interesting. First is that they have their own uh, business model in the Philippines, and that's uh, charging for mobile services through people's phones. Uh, and we're able to customize our games and work with that business model, and people pay us a little bit of money for access to our games on their phones in the Philippines only. And that gives us revenue that most other uh, small studios don't have while they're building up the big game that they want to release. Uh, I'd, I'd like to stop you there and point out two things that I, I thought was very smart about 
uh, the Zerpas thing in particular. One, uh, it's a Filipino company. Yep. And, and I think having, having somebody who, who understands the Philippines investing in a Filipino company made a lot of sense. Uh, I think a lot of people outside of the Philippines don't understand the challenges of the Philippines. They don't get what life is like in the Philippines and it's difficult to explain to them, uh, how you're building your company there and the sort of challenges you face. So I think you had a lot of synchronicity there. And then the other thing was they didn't just bring money. Like you just said, they brought, something else they brought a network and they brought traffic and they, they brought, brought expertise <laughs> and they, yeah they brought revenue right and a lot of times when i'm talking to young people who are talking about wanting to go out and get investors they're just like anyone with money i just want somebody with money and you forget this is your business partner for the rest of the life of your company right that's this has got to be somebody who brings more than a bucket of money mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely so uh we we consciously didn't ask for people who would just write a check and you know let us do whatever they want. Uh, it's a pretty strategic uh, investment. They've been very very helpful to us, and yeah, in turn we've helped them build their business in the Philippines, and now they're going across Southeast Asia. So I want to talk a little bit about the Philippines. One of the things p- p- there's very few people who are going to listen to this podcast who don't know you already, but for the couple that don't. Um, Gabby is pretty much known as the the guy you need to know if you want to go do business in the Philippines. And I I want you to I want to start out by talking about what is the game scene in the Philippines like? If you, if you were talking to somebody who knew nothing about game development in the Philippines, what's the story in the Philippines right now? Okay, so I would say uh there's indie, there's outsourcing, and there are a few studios like us who are trying to do uh original uh, intellectual property. Uh, but the, I would say in the last decade, the bulk of the game industry in the Philippines was built off outsourcing, which has always been a big uh, industry in the Philippines, in particular call centers, medical transcription, you name it. And so that for, was, for, the, for those who don't know, why? Uh, well, the Philippines had always been Western-leaning, good English, watch the same show. So things like outsourcing support had always been very natural. Uh, so uh, the, the investors in technology, and there were no VCs here a decade ago either, uh, they knew what outsourcing was like. They knew what the business model was like. And they knew that you know if you charge $50 and paid someone $10 an hour, you'd, you'd, you'd make money in between, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's why a lot, most people who started in games here, uh, yeah, just came from outsourcing and, and I was no different. I came from that as well. Uh, of course I wanted to make my own product and that's why, uh, after doing my own company, I joined BoomZap and it was only there that, uh, you know, I experienced, uh, this is what I wanted to do, which is really, you know, make really good games end to end and ship them to, you know, millions of users who would actually play it. So th- that was a really good feeling. So how... So that that's kind of where the where the industry is right now. How can it improve? What 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 could what could be better in the Philippines? What what would help the Philippines grow as a as a game development destination? Well, a lot of people uh, that you ask would say access to money, but actually I don't uh, believe so. Everyone thinks their their problems will be solved by access to money, uh, but I think it's exposure. Uh, to a lot, what a lot of people are doing, the latest things that are going on. It doesn't have to be free to play. It could be indie. It could be spe- a specific niche on, on Steam. Uh, and being just going toe to toe with the best 
of the game developers around the world in whatever niche you you think you you want to excel in i think that's that's how uh, we can make it better a lot of communities may tend to be somewhat insular i think small communities in particular maybe a philippines or a singapore can think of oh is this a good filipino game is this a good singaporean game but uh, when you try to kind of box yourself into you know being uh, you know the big fish in the small pond you're already limiting yourself to to what you can do and uh, i see also a lot of people that uh, you know that kind of criticize filipino developers for oh you know these guys they they aren't making real games just mobile games but you know that's probably coming from you know an 18 19 year old perspective uh, playing a lot of console games and not knowing a lot about how the industry works so just getting in there no, learning a lot you don't necessarily have to travel to a lot of conferences but just talk to a lot of people uh, on the forums a lot of different communities and uh, you'll actually learn a lot and going to shows like Casual Connect in Asia which Jessica and her team have done an excellent job of it it gives you the broader perspective and what the industry is like and will let you avoid a lot of the first time mistakes that a lot of uh, newcomers uh, do when they enter the industry. So one of the traps that I think people fall into, and I, I certainly have seen this in the Philippines, and you, you just sort of alluded to it as well, is the idea of being a Filipino developer as opposed to being a world-class developer, yep. right? Um, and and this, is not, this is not a particular it, – it is a problem that exists in the Philippines, but it's something that I've seen in Indonesia. It's something I've seen in Malaysia. It's even something I've seen in Singapore. This, this – I, I almost want to say small-town thinking about – well, we're we're a studio in this small developing country, and we're we don't have a huge industry, so we can lower our expectations of ourselves. But the problem is, the minute you start making those kind of decisions, you're no longer a world class studio because you know the people who play games don't give a shit where it was made, right? That you know if, if yeah. you're if you're going yeah. to the app store and you're looking at what what the next game that's gonna going to take up the next couple hours of your time you're not like i'm going to go find a good filipino game and if it's not so good well that's that's all right because what do you expect from filipinos that's no one thinks like that right <laughs> and so how do you how do you combat that how do you, not not just like you and your own studio but how does a gaming community whether it was india or malaysia or thailand or the philippines how do you combat that thinking that this is good enough for where i come from well, I, I can speak from personal experience and the way that I really broadened uh, my thinking on how we make our game and what we're competing against is by, you know, just meeting a lot of people around the world who are just as good, oftentimes a lot better, trying to do, like, competing in the same uh, industry niche or just making different types of games, but you can see that they're really bringing their best to the table. And a good example of this is... Uh, uh, Ian and the guys at Witching Hour with Masquerada, like they, you know, they, they didn't really set out to make the best Singaporean game, although that's that's the award they end up winning. They they set <laughs> out to win the the best fucking RPG they can possibly can within the resources that they could, and that's the other one that trips a lot of people up. You know, people who are new to the industry try to come in and say, oh, I'm gonna make a game better than you name it, right? Clash of Clans, yeah. Call of Duty, whatever. Yeah, and then we're, I'm going to do it with two of my college buddies and, you know, someone who's played a little <laughs> bit of Counter-Strike. Yeah, exactly. 
You know, it's it's actually for me, it's always almost been an advantage for Boomzap because even though we're we're a Singapore registered company, nobody thinks of us as a Singaporean company. And even though like half of our staff is Filipino, nobody thinks of us as a Filipino studio. <laughs> yeah. And so we've we've I like how you're like, yeah, you're not Filipino. I, I, that that was that was very clear there. But no, I mean this has always been the case that we don't we don't have a home. We're a truly international company. And so for us, we could never be good enough for a Filipino studio because we weren't a Filipino studio. You know, uh, it's it's always been something that I think's pushed us harder because we could never fall back on, you know, well, we got this grant from the, the Thai government and they're helping us out. And, you know, as long as we make a game with a bunch of Thai characters, we're cool and we'll make our money off the government like that. We've never had that option. But there are studios out there that, that kind of do that. They chase the government grants and they, they do just enough to get their grant, just enough so they can, you know, get an, and, and you think, well, this is never going to, you're never going to get anywhere with that. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, a lot of exposure of this, uh, looking at, and a lot of these seems like, for example, look, look at the Eastern European game development communities. A lot of them have worked with the biggest publisher. So even if they come from, you know, bumfuck out of nowhere in Russia or Ukraine, they're actually producing some of the best games out there and that's because of the wide exposure they have and the and the competition the bar that they set for competition for how how good a product that they do and you know i there's a little part of me and i'm I'm not saying that government shouldn't help people out but you know what there's very little help from the ukrainian government there's very little help from the serbian government right yeah and i wonder sometimes when you see how much in southeast asia you know you, you see it you read it on igda and stuff all the time you know why don't we have more government grants canada has government grants let's do more government grants like canada but you know there were five or six studios in canada that lived just as long as they had their grants and the minute the grants were taken away the studio shut down because they had never really built viable businesses and you know, I come from the the Austin game development scene, and there there were never Austin grants. There was nobody nobody built their companies in Austin out of grant money. They had to build a viable business from the very beginning. And part of me thinks that that what's happening in Eastern Europe is the same thing. The 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 companies over there have kind of had to build it on their own, and that that's meant if they weren't viable, they never they never could go. But in in some of the Southeast Asian countries where the 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 focus was on how do I get the government to fund this, I don't know that that related to how do we build the best possible business yeah it's a big difference for example in the philippines versus uh, malaysia or singapore mm -hmm. uh, where malaysia and singapore do have some active programs i think they've uh, scaled it back a bit but they do have some active programs on funding prototypes funding parts of games and uh the funny thing is like a lot of people here in the philippines are bitching about you know the government never does anything for uh industries like us and you know while that's largely true they can't give out cash definitely they can probably pay for a booth if you go abroad uh what people don't see is that the malaysia and singapore communities are jealous of the filipino community for how much people help each other and just kind of band it <laughs> together and you know, make their own four-letter organization and try to do their own trade shows. The, the Malaysians are absolutely jealous of that, and and they're like, you know, we 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 pay for these programs to get people together, and a lot of them just don't go. People think, what's in it for me? And here, because we've had no kind of help and had to fend for ourselves, people are actually genuinely helping each other. Yeah, I I would argue though part of this, and I don't I don't want to get into some sort of weird racist argument, 
But let's be honest, the Filipino culture is actually a very supportive culture. One of the the fascinating things for me as I got more involved in the Philippines as we built our own business was learning just how much of Filipino culture is about finding your place within your company and finding your place within your family and the responsibilities that you owe to the people around you to help people around you out. That's always surprised me about the Philippines. It's one of the strongest and best parts of the society there. It's also the weakness. Uh, the Philippines is a very <laughs> tribal nature. Uh, and what you describe are all the positives. And I think the negative is the small tribal thinking. If my tribe is better than yours, then I'm okay. Uh, and instead of, you know, how can we all push together and achieve something 10 times greater? And uh, it, it's largely a homogeneous society. You don't really see a lot of people like migrating to the Philippines, except maybe for retirement or something, mm -hmm. or, for, or for love. <laughs> so uh, you don't have a lot of those, you know, uh, immigrant coming here out of nowhere and do backbreaking work so that I can achieve a lot more. Uh, and, you know, the it's a great thing, but it's also a bad thing that there's always a fallback. You can live in your mother's basement. You know, you, you, there's family to help you. And while that's great from, a, I would say, a tribal social safety perspective, it also hinders people in, in some ways. You know, it's funny. I was actually speaking to a bunch of the, the Filipino folks that used to work for BoomZap that now work for Casual Connect. We had a, a really nice uh, lunch out in Berlin. And we were talking about this exact issue and how long it took me to understand. I used to get very upset because I would see people that worked for my studio in the Philippines and they would be earning, you know, pretty good money. You know, we pay pretty well and, and they would be pretty successful. And then we would see suddenly the whole family was like, well, that's our money. Right. And suddenly, like, we realized that, that, that we weren't just funding the person that worked for us. We were funding their entire extended family. And it, it's quite stressful for these people uh -huh. because, you know, suddenly they're responsible for, you know, financially responsible for a large extended family. And I used to get really upset about that. And I used to think, like, wow, that's really that's really hard on them. And maybe I should have a talk with them about how they shouldn't tell their families how much money they earn or something like that. And then I realized I had it all wrong. They're really proud of being able to do that, mm -hmm. you know, where, where is in, in, you know, if, if we were in another place, maybe they would go out and buy a really fancy car or they would buy a really expensive house or or they would do some sort of ridiculous shit with their money. What Filipinos do when they get a bunch of money is they take care of a whole lot of their family and that's <laughs> how they show it off. Right. And it, it, it took me a while to get to that. I, I know that sounds a little bit racist, but it but it's true. I mean, I'm, you back me up on this. It's largely true. You know, and and I, you know. If you're going to have a way to vanity spend your money, I guess taking care of your family is part of it. But but it, it harkens back to exactly what you're talking about. The tribe took care of me, and now I have to go take care of the tribe. When, and I remembered, like, these people, when they were young and they were going to college, there probably was an auntie or an uncle or somebody in the family that was busting their ass in a really hard job and giving some of that money to their family to make sure that they could go to college so that they could get a degree so that they could graduate. And when they graduated and they went and got a job that paid a lot of money, well, yeah, of course you pay that back, right? And, yeah. and, you, and you don't pay it back by just handing cash to somebody and saying, you know, we're even. You hand it back by being just as responsible for the, the next generation. Yeah. yeah. And that that part of Filipino society is so strong, and you 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 if you're gonna work in the Philippines, you just have to get your head around it. 
Yeah, you know, it's still largely a poor country. If you're in Metro Manila, of course, like you can see where the rich people are. Uh, but yeah, it's still largely a poor country, and uh, you know, everyone has relatives who just need something to get them by. You know, it's it's funny. I always talk about this when when people ask me what the Philippines is like, and of course, everyone who works for me, I don't, I don't have poor people working for me because poor people didn't go to college and didn't learn how to program computers, largely, right? Yep. Um, but nobody who works if if you know a Filipino, that person is one or two generations or one or two you know one or two parts removed from somebody in their family that does know poverty, right? You're it's 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 always there and it's always something that you that that you have some experience it whether it's in your family or even just walking down the street and seeing the poverty that exists just right in front of you everywhere in Manila, it's a uh, it's a part of Filipino society that if you're going to work in the Philippines, you're going to work with Filipinos. You have to understand how that affects the culture. That's largely true. Yeah. So, wow, that got me kind of down. <laughs> so I want to I want to I want to get something a little bit more uplifting here than than poverty in the Philippines. Uh, I want to talk about what what your schedule looks like. What you're one of the most effective people I know in terms of just getting a hell of a lot of stuff done in not much time. And and still keeping in pretty good physical shape and 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 you, you have incredible work life balance. Like, tell me how you do that. Tell me a little bit about how you schedule your day, your week, your month. How do you put together the the kind of work life balance life that you manage? Well, uh, my main job uh, at Altitude uh, as the CEO is to really work on the machine that that produces these games so i mean i don't code anything i don't design anything myself anymore so i do spend a lot of time working on the machine and not uh, inside of the machine itself and of course now we've grown to, we're about the same size as booms up now around 30 people uh and that's that's a big company that's a lot of responsibility yeah it is uh but i would say that uh because i have also experienced uh what we did in Booms Up, where you know we scaled pretty fast to 90, then had to pare it back down. Uh, I've been designing the company uh, with uh, scale uh, more in mind and trying to build the pieces a little more deliberately. One of the things we had with Booms Up that's different from Altitude now is that we had a very flat uh, hierarchy. Yeah. Where we're pretty much like everyone, almost everyone reported to either you or Alan, right? So uh, we're yes, at, <laughs> yeah, and and you know everything has its uh, good and bad points, and with uh, with a very flat hierarchy, what happens is that those people become the bottlenecks, right? And and also they want to kill themselves. I, yeah. I can remember when we were up at 90, I can remember some nights that I just wanted to curl up in a corner with a bottle of Jack and make it all go away. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I actually do have a, a senior team, uh, like, looking at, like, so, uh, and part of it are, of course, my co-founders looking at it from a tech, from a design standpoint, but we also have someone who's in charge of uh, production, uh, of analytics, so we are actually... We have uh, a lot of functional responsibility. I mean, those people don't have a lot of people under them. Of course, the artists, there are a lot of artists under the art director. 
and and then uh, for the for the data guy, there's just one person under him. But we have a much more functional structure. I mean, beyond that structure, it's largely flat. But there's I would say there's a lot more uh, management in in how we run our company than than how we did at Boomzap, where it was a very flat studio so that enables me to kind of look ahead look around the corners uh see where the next deal is coming from see where the cash flow is you know coming from or you know uh and that and and that means i don't have a very set routine a lot of it is very fluid depending on you know do i need to meet with someone do i need to uh fly to a conference what I do try to do is uh, try to always make time for keeping fit. And this is something that I rediscovered when I was at Boomzap. I discovered martial arts and then I, I went on it like extreme for a while, uh, did different martial arts, was competing. I've paired back a bit now. I'm, I'm doing only boxing just because I need to focus on the business more. But yeah, it's it's never left. And uh, the martial arts kind of keeps me sane, keeps me fit. And yeah, it, it it'll keep me alive for a good number of years. How how much time do you put into that in a week? What I mean, how much time do you spend in the gym or exercising in a, in an average week? So uh, that it used to be uh, a lot more before. So before I would work out maybe six, like six to eight times in a week. Now Jesus. I'm I'm down to around three. Uh, I I gave up jujitsu for the moment. I'm doing uh, uh I'm doing bo- boxing, which I've done for over a decade. And if, if you know that. The, the traffic condition when this even gotten worse. I mean, you, you you didn't realize how worse it could get, but it still got worse. So the the trainer goes to my house two three times a week, and yeah, we we do the mitts. Sometimes we spar, and you know this is something that doesn't cost a lot of money in the Philippines. It's cost less than going to a gym in the U.S. and just hitting the bags. Yeah, that, there is there is a lot of stuff that you, you can get for cheap in the Philippines that I wish I could get, and personal trainers is probably in the top three. Uh, and there's good personal trainers in the Philippines. That's the that's the really nice thing. That's a especially if you're boxing. That's a boxing friendly country. <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> but uh, but no, it's it's something that I wish I wish I could now say like, well, let me tell you about my health routine. But my health <laughs> routine is uh, I've gotten real fat, and it, and it's and it's honestly it's on the list of stuff that I I need to fix because I can tell you, I've always been more successful when I'm healthier. That's it's one of the most obviously correlated things. And you, you get in this space where you say, I don't have time for exercise. And then you always feel low and you always feel slow. Yeah. And the time that you are spending on what you're doing is less effective. So it's I wish I could brag now, but I can't. I'm, I'm That's one of the things I'm most ashamed of in my life right now is that I, I haven't managed to keep that discipline. So I should do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. Sometimes I get lazy too, but uh, number one, the trainer goes to my house. It's not like I can turn him back and say, hey, just come back in two or three days. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the second thing is that, you know, I've, I've been like very much overweight, you know, and you feel sluggish. Your willpower is lower. Uh, yep. You can, your 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 decisions are, are less quality when you're tired. And one, one of the things that I actively try to do now, you, you can call it something of a hobby, is to I try to sharpen the quality of my decision making. So so this is actually my hobby now. I, I, I try to understand how to make better decisions. It's not a very visible hobby like, you know, like boxing or, or running. But yeah, it's, it's something I do spend a lot of time on. So how do you how do you measure that? How do you measure the quality of your decision making? Um, I 
I haven't really gone and made KPIs out of this. What I've done is kind of like break down the process and honestly just read a lot of books and listen to some podcasts on how to to better make uh, good decisions. And I mean, the reason for this is that one, I am uh, I'm leading my own company and how my decisions affect there's a lot of people, not only the employees, the investors, the people that play our game, my own family and how we do financially. Uh, so, and second, it's just really interesting to go in that rabbit hole where you have thousands of years of, you know, people thinking about how to make good decisions from, you know, from the from Seneca and Stoicism in the in in the early eras, which I'm uh, very much into now, uh, into just reading on what blogs and books are coming out, and yeah, it's it's an endless source of fascination. So this, I I could not have gotten a better intro to the question I've been asking everybody, um, which is books, websites, podcasts, blogs. If you had a top three, because I I'm, I'm limiting you to three, because you could you could probably talk about this all day. <laughs> I'm limiting you to like three or four. I'll give you three or four. Where, if if you wanted somebody to kind of get inside your head, and this is this is where Gabby gets his information, this is where Gabby sorts out his shit. Like, what are the what are the what are the top hits for you? Okay, one of the very interesting books that I've read uh, many times is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Uh, Josh uh, was a, a young chess champion in the U.S. and he was supposed to become the next Bobby Fischer. And uh, and when the media spotlight turned on him, he crumbled under pressure. And but before that, he was doing really well, uh, and he was just kicking so much ass in the kids division, beating kids like a lot older than him. And uh, when he retired from competitive chess, he tried to analyze what it was that uh, made it uh, made him very effective, and how. Uh, and why uh, he lost a lot of that effectivity when uh, he was under media pressure. And he decided to turn his career into martial arts. So he actually went into competitive Tai Chi called Push Hands. And he won the world championship in the seat of like World Tai Chi, which is Taiwan. And he was uh, and w- where usually foreigners never win. And yeah. he, he was able to distill learning that he learned from chess, that he applied to martial arts. And, you know, I love chess. I used to play chess when I was a kid. I, I still do martial arts as of now. And he was able to, uh, I would say, retain the, the, the first principles, if you will, of learning. And now he, he helps uh, apply these into, you know, whatever kind of sport. He he trains other people. He trains high performers, and yeah, it's it's a very fascinating book. That is cool. So so that's one. You got two more if you want to, if, or if you can stop there. Anything else you're 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 reading or any? I, I'm curious where you go on the internet. Where what I I've, I spend way too much time on the internet. I need to pull back. Where is an effective place for me to go spend my time on the internet? Uh, well, aside from the Nine Squirrels podcasts. <laughs> So I discovered uh, a blog recently. It's called the Farnham Street Blog, and it talks exactly about this. Uh, it uh, it talks about how you make uh, the science of making good decisions. And what it does is it reviews a lot of books, a shit ton of books, so that you kind of know which ones you would want to buy. And uh, and a lot of them they cover things like, for example, if you read up on the material of uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they speak a lot, not really about financial investing, which they're obviously very good at, but about worldly wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And a lot of what they're doing, which people define as investment, it's actually making like very smart decisions and very importantly, how to avoid making stupid ones. That that I need because I've made <laughs> some. I could do a, I could do a whole podcast series on I could do like stupid decision one by one. I could I could cover a year of stupid decisions <laughs> I've made. Uh, well, we we all have. That's what, uh, that, that's where experience comes from, I believe. <laughs> uh, I guess I, I guess you could look at that. So the last thing I'll ask. Uh, this is this is your free chance to pimp your shit. So I want to know if somebody's interested in knowing more about Gabby. They're interested in knowing more about Altitude. They're interested in playing your stuff. Where do I go? What do I do? Okay, so we just released a game a few months ago called Dream Defense. Uh, it's it's sort of like Tower Defense, but it's like plants versus zombies, except that you're a bear defending the sleeping kid from the monsters coming coming inside of your bed. It's uh, totally adorable, by the way. I I play this. It's really really cute. Did we just lose you, guys? Still updating it. Oh wait, wait. Uh, so you here. wait, yeah. You got to repeat all that because uh, you cut out for a little bit. Okay. So Start, dream defense. Yeah. Yeah, dream defense is a game where it's like tower defense, but it's more like plants versus zombies. Uh, except that you're a you're a teddy bear defending a sleeping child from monsters coming at uh coming at a child. So we it's gotten over a million downloads in in under two months. Uh, it's wow. Altitude's most successful game so far, and yeah, we're still doing a lot of updates on it, trying to make the game better update by update. And you know, with free to play, like the the game doesn't the game isn't done when you launch it. It's just the beginning of just a long slog of trying to make money with it. So that's where yeah. we are. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, that's what we've got for this podcast. This was highly informative. I'm going to have to put a bunch of tags on this for if you want to run a virtual business, you've got to go listen to this podcast. I think that's uh, we'll, we'll make sure to label it that way because there was a lot of great information there. Uh, thank you so much, Gabby. Thanks for this having me, Chris. Absolutely awesome. Thank you. And that's what we've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed that. Like I say, it's incredibly, um, I think there's incredibly useful information in there for budding young entrepreneurs. You know, I should probably know how to say the word entrepreneur, but I'm, I'm just going to go with it. We're going to move on. We're just going to, I'm not going to, not going to stress on that. Uh, you know, I, if I were a better man, I'd go and I'd edit this out, but I'm not that better man. So I'm just going to leave this here and you're going to have to listen to that. That's going to be like 20 seconds of your life you don't get back. Anyway, that was the show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back. We've got more interviews, more monologues, more cool stuff. If you're into this, you know what to do. Go tell everybody about it. And we'll see you on the next episode.